Abby. And I'm Caitlin. And today we are going to discuss A Court of Thorns and Roses, by, also known as ACOTAR, by Sarah J. Mass. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, we do abbreviate the titles of these books. Uh, so if we say ACOTAR, that's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about like the acronym. It's just, it's a mouthful. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. ACOTAR is just so much easier. So yeah, we'll have, uh, we'll start off with Tabby reading the back of the book for us. Yeah, just to give you a little insight to what we're getting into here. Um, So when 19-year-old Huntress Farah kills a wolf in the woods, a terrifying creature arrives to demand retribution. Dragged to a treacherous magical land she knows about only from legends, Farah discovers that her captor is not truly a beast, but one of the lethal immortal fairies who once ruled her world. At least he's not a beast all the time. As she adapts to her new home, her feelings for the fairy, Tamlin, transform from icy hostility into fiery passion that burns through every lie she's been told about the beautiful, dangerous world of the fae. But something is not right in the fairy lands. An ancient wicked shadow is growing, and Feyre must find a way to stop it or doom Tamlin and his world forever. First of all, what (laughs) is your opinion of the book overall? Like, how would you rate it? Um, If I had to rate the book, so... I love all of Sarah J. Mass's work. She is absolutely incredible. We'll talk about world building here in a little bit, but I mean, she really just does a phenomenal job at creating a way for you to, you know, step outside of your own world. So you can escape for a few hours reading this book. And that's that's something I've always really respected about her. Um, The book itself, if I've read the entire series, if I had to look at it in terms of the entire series, I would probably give it a four out of five. Um, it's not my favorite, but it does create the foundation, obviously, for everything that Akatar is. So you have to, you have to love it because without that, we wouldn't know what's going on. Um, that being said, I mean, there are some things that I didn't necessarily love, or I have a little bit of a bone to pick. She maybe just didn't clarify or follow up on some things. We had some loose strings at the end. Um, The book itself, though, is beautifully done. I agree with you. And I actually, I think I would rate it a little bit higher than you. I think I would rate it like 4.7 out of 5, if that's allowed, (laughs) because this is of the entire series. It's my second favorite book. I think I just, I really like a lot of that world building. Um, and I will admit the first time I read it was a little overwhelmed, a little confused, but this is actually my second time reading the book. So I had a lot of, um, having read the entire series. Now I had a lot of moments of realization and it just made me feel really good. And I think there's a little bit of nostalgia for me just attached to to the first of any series. It's like the book that made me interested in the series. series. Yeah. So I always have a soft spot for the first book of any series. That's just kind of my personality, I guess. No, and I totally agree. Um, I I definitely am glad that I've reread it a couple times now um, because because there is a lot of world building, you you do miss some information every now and again because you are focused on, you know, where you're at in the world, um, you know, what characters are interacting with each other at the time. And so going back and reading it a second time, it definitely does like make you catch things you missed and then also allow you to, you know, piece together things in future books and also, you know, some theories that you may be interested in. 
Yeah, and part of that is due to um, the way Sarah J. Mass writes this book is from Feyre's perspective. And so all of the world building that's occurring is from what Feyre sees and hears. So it starts off, she's in the mortal realm. And all she knows about the fairy realm is um, basically fairy tales, uh, for lack of a better word, from growing up. And so it's in her mind, like this nightmarish land of like horrifying creatures that'll rip your throat out. Um, and that does exist there, mm-hmm. but she is being introduced to this world a little bit at a time. And so that's the information that we as the reader have as well. So that's part of the reason why in the first read through, I think the reader's a little bit, um, just, you know, a little bit confused because so is Feyre. Like it's fair. That's, that's all the knowledge you have is what she can hear and see. So. Well, and something that I always forget too, you know, reading it the first time is, um, you know, you have to think about the war between the Fae and the humans that they had, you know, 500 years prior to that, whenever they built the wall. Um, so many things that the humans had worshipped, they worshipped the same gods as the, the, the Fae, they, um, you know, had some of the same traditions. And so it's just so far removed, so many um like old tales have been told and so many stories have been passed around that they kind of lose the plot over those centuries. And so she is going into it with the mindset that everything she's been told is true. Absolutely. Cause I mean, what else does she have to, to base her opinions on except for what she has learned? So, and I honestly, that kind of speaks to humans as a species like wow we're so biased and we need to be more (laughs) (laughs) open-minded thanks Sarah J I know that's what you were going for um so we are going to split our talk a little bit so we're going to start off by talking about everything before under the mountain and then we're going to talk about under the mountain and our assumption going into this um I think it goes without saying, spoiler alert, you read uh, <laughs> the, the entire podcast is actually spoilers. Um, we have, we're, assuming, we're assuming that you have read the book at this point that you're listening, or you're not interested in reading the book and you just want to listen to people talk about the book, which is also like, you know, I feel we'll that. save you some time. Yeah. Like spark notes, baby. <laughs> so yeah, that's how we're going to kind of split our talk. Let's start with world building. For those of you who are watching our visual recording on YouTube, the map of Prithian and also the continent, wow, everything is backwards, um, is behind me. It's my background. So I'll try to like lean out of the way so you can get a good look. Um, If you're not listening or if you're not watching this on YouTube, you can also look to the front cover of the book that you have, hopefully, um, and you can find a map of Prithian there as well. Yeah, and this picture that's my background is actually from Sarah J. Mass's website. So it's actually posted online as well. Like I was saying earlier, Sarah J. Mass is known for her amazing world building skills. Prithian itself, a lot of theories actually surrounding it say that it is supposed to be kind of modeled after the the UK. I don't know how much truth that holds, but now every time I read the books, they all have different accents from the UK in there. But really, you know, the whole first half of this book is just kind of creating, you know, what the world of Prithian is, as well as 
the world outside of it. So it split with this wall um, after this war that happened 500 years ago. Um, essentially, humans were no longer allowed to be slaves to the fairies. And so they created this divide that goes all the way across the continents throughout the sea. Um, and they just refer to it as the wall. And so essentially, I mean, you have two different, completely different realms on either side. You have the human side, which has, you know, seen some shit. Like they, <laughs> they are living in poverty for the most part. There are parts of the continent that do have cities that do, um, you know, have larger civilizations. However, where Miss Farrah is located here, she is in this tiny little village about two days away from Prithian. And so we do spend quite a bit of time there at the beginning of the book. And then eventually we do make our way into the world of Prithian, um, which is going to be split into different courts. You have the courts that are going to be like day court, night court, and dawn court. So those are your celestial ones. And then you have the courts that are broken into the season. So summer, winter, spring, and then autumn. We do spend all of our time in the spring court. It is perpetually spring, which is nice if you if you're into that. Um, <laughs> but um, like I said, Miss Sarah does a lot with, you know, just creating this realm where you can really take yourself out of reality and place yourself into this whole new world. Absolutely. I mean, it cured my depression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we will kind of go now that we have like a good orientation to the setting of the book. We're going to talk about the background of Farah and her family. So it starts off Farah's father. When Farah's a child, he is known as the Prince of Merchants. He has, it's basically been a family business, his father and his father before that, they basically just invest money for people and make profits. And so it turns out though, that by the time Pharaoh's father has inherited this business, he's actually also taken on a lot of debts. So not quite as profitable as they were pretending that the business was. And it catches up to him. He is in a lot of debt and in an attempt to pay off his debts, he makes a really risky investment. He sends all of his wealth on this like horrible journey on some boats to some place on the continent. And like, they basically told him like, Hey, that's going to sink. And he was like, um, well, it's going to take too long if we go the safe way. Of course, everything sinks. He loses all of his wealth and the creditors come destroy his knee in front of his family. Poor little Farah. She's like a child watching her father being beaten to what she is afraid is going to be to death. Very traumatizing and horrible. Before this happens, Farah has already lost her mother to typhus. So um, I'm not sure how many years prior it was, but it, it was, uh, I think she was pretty young. A few, yeah, she was very, very young. <laughs> her mother is on her deathbed and asks her youngest daughter, Farah, to vow to take care of their family, keep them together and keep them safe. Um, (laughs) a little wacky, um, to ask your youngest child when you, first of all, you have a husband, second of all, two older kids, but she's like, no, I want that one to be in charge of the fate of this family. And Farah talks about how the kind of the tradition of their culture, it's like promises are the most valuable thing. Thing. Which is funny because it was actually fate. Tra- they talked about it being fate tradition to oh. make these vows. And so it's something that had carried over from, you know, before the war. Um, yeah. And so it is, you know, something they take very seriously. 
with them not having magic or so they say these vows are like all they have so it takes a little bit of time for their wealth to run out completely but eventually it does run out and they're going to starve to death if Farah doesn't go out and and hunt to provide food for the family so at like 11 years old she spies on hunters and teaches herself to hunt and she does that for five years until the the time that the book is taking place when she's 19. Uh, do you want to kind of talk about her sisters? Yes, I will. <laughs> I know you you uh, love talking I about her sisters. I think Feyre's sisters are absolute garbage. Um, so oh, we gosh. have the oldest Nesta. And so Nesta is just a spiteful piece of work. She knows she is and she owns it. And that is probably the only thing that keeps me from absolutely detesting her is that at least she knows she's the way that she is. She is a creature of her mother. She was the one who was doted on. She was given the most attention. She was, you know, essentially being groomed to be this person who could take over their empire. Um, Then we have Elaine. So Elaine is the second and she is your true second child. She was not really given much attention. She did everything the way she was supposed to. Um, she was the most beautiful of the family. And so her mom fully expected her to essentially just be someone they could marry off into a rich family, get a lot of money from it. It's a good business partnership for them. Thayer's sisters are lazy. They are rude. Uh, they do not want to help. They're, you know, upset with the situation that they have been forced into. They went from extreme wealth to extreme poverty. They do not like the fact that they are surrounded by, you know, essentially these poor villagers. They're also shunned from the villagers because of who they were prior. With Elaine, I mean, my biggest bone to pick with her is that she is a gardener. She loves taking care of her plants. She loves, you know, growing things. However, the one thing she decided not to grow in this time of poverty were, you know, produce, potatoes, so, potatoes, vegetables, anything. Um, she had the opportunity to help her family out, but um, like Farah said, she just truly believes it just never crossed her mind. It's not something that Elaine thought about. It's not Elaine something. It's not something Elaine thought she should take responsibility for. Um, and so Elaine's probably my least favorite of both of the sisters, simply because she. Okay doesn't take responsibility for anything and just kind of relies on Farah to provide for her. Her dad doesn't really tell her any different. And so no one corrects her. Um, Nesta, she does it just because she's mad at her situation. (laughs) She's doing it on purpose and she swears by that. So, I mean, at least she knows her truth, but yeah. So the book starts off with Farah. She's in the woods hunting again. So her family can literally survive. Um, they're a bunch of ingrates, but she takes care of them because of her promise to her mother. And so she's hunting and there's a deer. So she's like, sweet, that's dinner for like a couple weeks. But then this giant wolf comes and she's like, good Lord, that's a big old wolf to be a fairy. She's like, yeah, that that's probably a fairy. Because, again, they live pretty close to the wall. So the wolf kills the deer. And so she goes ahead and kills the wolf. And she like looks in its eyes. She can tell like it's got an intelligence there that's like clearly not um, a real wolf. So she knows it's a fairy deep down, but she kills it anyway. She's like, screw you. Like, because really sat well with me considering she immediately went on to skin it. <laughs> she did. She 
<laughs> I will come back to some something else about this scene later in our discussion. But yeah, she kills the wolf by shooting its eye. Like that's the kill shot. And then she just skins it and takes its pelt because she's like, well, I can't carry the deer and the wolf. So I'm going to just skin this guy who I'm positive is a fairy. But I mean, again, she's in, she's living in poverty. Like I understand she needs the money. She needs the food. It's not like she's necessarily doing any of this. She's not like some crazed murderer. Yeah. Like she even says later, she doesn't like hunting. So really the basic plot, the basic physical portions of this story are very similar to Beauty and the Beast. So we start off with Feyre and um, Caitlin actually, we'll talk a little bit about her name and her namesake a little bit later. Um, We have Feyre and she is an outcast. Her family is an outcast. This is very similar to how um, Belle and her father are in the original Beauty and the Beast. They are looked down upon. Everyone thinks they're kind of strange. They're a little different. They're not from there. Um, You have you know, the beast, which is Tamlin in this situation, who ends up coming in for Feyre because she has, you know, killed off this sentry of his and he has to take retribution on her. So he kidnaps Feyre, doesn't really kidnap her. He takes Feyre <laughs> to the land of Prithian. It, she she agreed to go. Some of the biggest differences are obviously um, she's not going in place of any of her family members. However, she does feel inclined to do so because of the vow she made to her mom. So in a sense, she feels like it's her duty to do so to protect her family, um, like Belle did with her father. Some other similarities really comes down to, you know, the household itself. So there is this blight or this sickness that has fallen upon the land and, it's affected everyone's magic that basically it's gone awry. Things are not the way that it used to be. Everybody in Tamlin's household has these masks that are attached to their faces. And this is due to a curse. Um, when they went to a masquerade, everybody had, you know, worn these masks as an homage to Tamlin and his abilities to change shapes. And so they're all stuck in these forms, similar to how it was in Beauty and the Beast. And his household were all turned into teapots and feather dusters and candlesticks. And so they've been disfigured in a way that changes who they were to begin with and almost kind of gives them a point of shame essentially in addition to you know Tamlin's ability to change into an actual beast and yeah um, you have you know the curse that he's trying to break here and uh Feyre eventually we find out she is the the one who is supposed to break it he's supposed to make a, a human woman fall in love with him after she has such hate in her heart for fairies and um, in the ninth hour come in and you know fix everything for them but once we obviously get to under the mountain things change a little bit but for the first half of the book it is pretty much the exact same as Beauty and the Beast yeah it is and um, I think that's what makes the under the mountain section so interesting and everyone's favorite well I say everyone our favorite, favorite. part of the book <laughs> because that's where the originality comes in and it's it's definitely, it's the best part of the book. So some other, just a little more detailed similarities that are kind of fun. So Belle in Beauty and the Beast, Belle means beauty. And similarly, Feyre means beauty. So we find on page 69, Feyre is looking in the mirror and she says, I would have lived up to my namesake were it not for the effects of poverty, but I'd never particularly cared. Beauty didn't mean anything in the forest. 
and some other details that are similar. Tamlin does come to Feyre's aid when she's being attacked in the woods by a pack of evil fairies, similar to Belle being attacked by wolves. And Feyre does tend to Tamlin's wounds once he's hunted and killed the bog, um, another evil fairy entity, uh, similar to when Belle tends the beast's wounds in, oh, also like when the beast gifts the library to Belle, Tamlin gifts the gallery, the art gallery to Feyre and also gives her somewhere where she can do all of her painting and provides her with all the supplies that she needs. So it's got some, some similar vibes for sure. And, and just the same way, like their relationship develops as well. When you have those critical points in the story where, you know, he does save her, where she does start caring for him. It is mirrored in the Akatar series and um, the same way Farah and Tamlin's relationship develops. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes this book so, like I was saying with every book in the first of its series, or that is the first of its series, there's a bit of nostalgia that comes with it. But this one in particular has the nostalgia of being based loosely on like a childhood fairy tale. So I think that that plays in its favor for me. Um, it makes me really, really like it because it feels familiar and it feels like you know what's going to happen. But then she kind of just turns it around on you at the end. And she's like, actually, I have something more exciting. The second book is very much the same. She talks about the story of like Hades and Persephone um, personified. And so um, she really does a, a cool way of, you know, starting off the story with, like you said, something we're very familiar with, but then twisting it to make it her own into something brand new and exciting so that we're wanting to read that next book. So, you know, introducing some more of the characters before we go under the mountain, um, we do have two of our main mans, that's Tamlin and Lucian. Tamlin is our main male character in this series. He is the beast to the beauty. He is the high lord of the spring court. Really, Tamlin comes from a pretty terrible family background. He is the youngest son of the spring court. Um, His family was brutally slaughtered by one of the other high lords in the area. And so he is kind of forced into this role as high lord of the spring court. Not necessarily the best fit for it, but he he does his best. Um, (laughs) He tries to do his best. Yeah. He is, you know, the one who... (laughs) We stand a man who tries his best. We stand a man who does the bare minimum. Um, he is the one who brings Feyre into the world of Prithian. He is a little prickly to begin with. Um, so you do see their relationship kind of evolve into something different. He turns into this very caring and very a big motivator for Feyre, really. He wants to make sure that she feels comfortable and that she feels safe. It's something that she's never really had before in her life. And so he really just does become kind of a bright spot for her. And it really, it works. Like it worked on me. It made me love Tamlin. Made me fall for him. Um, yeah, I, I too was like, yes, um, it's our husband, Tamlin. But we'll talk about later. There are some things still that he, he's lacking. Some um, red flags to say the least. There are some red flags. And there are things that you're willing to overlook at first in this first novel because of the book being written from Feyre's perspective what she are also kind of falling in love yeah I did write down a couple of things that make you fall in love with Tamlin so I'm just going to kind of you know just talk about some of those things first of all 
this is before Feyre and Tamlin are romantic with each other, but he does take Feyre to swim in a pool of starlight, which is to her, I mean, it's the most beautiful thing she's ever seen that he shares with her. And it makes her feel really valued that he would take her there because he mentions it was his favorite place to go as a child. He also, okay, so Feyre, when her family lost all of their wealth, she was very young and she hadn't quite learned how to read and write at this point. She could read very basic words, but she did not have the education that her older siblings had. So she is basically illiterate. And so she is going through books in his study, writing down a list of words that she doesn't know how to pronounce. And she becomes frustrated and crumples up the list and throws it away. But Tamlin finds it and writes poems for Feyre. And every, I think it's every second and fourth line end with a word from her list. And her list is, is it's quite long. funny. It's <laughs> long and it's funny and none of the words go together. So the, the poems are um, comical and Farah, it doesn't list all the poems out, but that's just something that I think she really appreciates is that someone took something that she feels really insecure about, and then they turned it into not only showing her how to use the words that she didn't know how to read, but also just turning it into something lighthearted and not making fun of her, but turning it into something that they can laugh about together, which is like really sweet. Also think it humanizes Tamlin himself because he, you learn a little bit about his history before he was, you know, forced into the role of High Lord. He was in his father's war band and a way to pass time was for him to write these limericks. And he also learned to play the lute and he, (laughs) a man um, of culture. He, yeah, he was just someone who seemed very easygoing. And, you know, while he was very strict with his regiments, you know, in terms of, you know, taking care of his father's army essentially and he also had a way to like kind of relax and have that downtime too which you don't really see until he takes her out to the forest to that glen he just seems like this really you know uptight dude who doesn't really know how to have fun and so to see that other side of him I think kind of made Pharaoh realize too that he's not all bad And there are a couple other really thoughtful things that he does whenever she mentions painting and how much it means to her. He immediately finds um, a way to get her supplies and a space to paint. He has the entire art gallery cleaned because it had been closed off since no one was interested in it. Also, when Feyre arrives, Tamlin has glamoured her to where she can't see a lot of the fairies around her. She can only see like the people that they deemed necessary for her to interact with. But there is a scene when Tamlin removes the glamour for her so she can see and hear everything. And at that point, she can hear like the willow tree is singing a lullaby. So she falls asleep. And as she's falling asleep and drifting, drifting off, he tells her, you're exactly how I dreamed you'd be. Really? Who doesn't want to hear that? Tugs at the heartstrings a little. And then also just the summer solstice situation. They like spend the whole night, like he's playing his fiddle and Feyre's dancing. Like they're just having an, a, a blast basically. And then they spend the night out together just dancing. And it's just, it's really romantic. And it makes you feel like, yeah, like Tamlin's the one for her. Absolutely. However, however don't don't forget the red flags um while I did love Tamlin I do think 
you know, he was problematic at best. Um, <laughs> you know, to begin with, when he did come to get Feyre, he immediately compared her to her sisters. Um, mm-hmm. Thought she oh, was yeah. this, this feral child uh, who there's no way she could have been the one to take out his sentry. Was like hoping and praying <laughs> that it was Elaine or Nesta that he got to take home with him. No, it was Feyre. Um, and eventually he does come to love her. He does come to realize she's pretty awesome. She is more than her sisters could ever be. However... Yeah. <laughs> He was definitely thinking more from the man's perspective of this. In addition to that, I mean, Lucian does say multiple times how he has fits of rage, how he maybe is very, you know, one tracked minded when it comes to the way things should be done. Um, they do mention- And we see it too. Like we see that a lot. Just Um, destroying shit when he gets mad. Like He is wildly jealous of (laughs) Lucian and he hates the relationship that he develops with Feyre because he can't get his shit together. He doesn't know how to act around women. He can't help but, you know, offend her every time she's in the room with him. And the way that he can be very selfish, the way that he can be very angry, he's prone to anger is, you know, a big red flag for me. So ladies, the lesson here, just because a man writes you a poem, doesn't mean he's the one you gotta look you gotta look at the whole picture you gotta look at the whole man the angry man lucian himself though um lucian is one of my absolute favorite characters so to be completely honest i was rooting for lucian and farah the first time i read this book i desperately thought they were going to end up together um i, I thought he had way better chemistry than Farah. Obviously, I knew that they were going for this beauty and the beast outlook, so it wasn't going to be Lucian. But just the the top, like the conversations between Lucian and Farah, the way that they get along, the way that you know he obviously doesn't care much for her to begin with, and he makes that very clear. However, they do develop this very stable relationship throughout the book, and he does end up being a very, a huge component in, you know, her success throughout the the, the book itself. He's a solid character. Um, he very much personifies the mask that he wears being a fox. He mm-hmm. is slick. He is a courtier through and through. He is very good at talking his way out of situations. He is a, a very strong character in this book, a very strong supporting character, and um, he kind of keeps Tamlin level-headed yeah and he is not into Feyre being there at the beginning he does not care for her she killed one of his close friends Andras but the more that he gets to know her and the more that she starts to let go of some of her prejudices they really do build a very solid bond to the point where he does gift her a hunting knife which is Obviously, you're not going to give a knife to someone unless you trust them and forgive them. So I think that's a real turning point for their relationship is when he gifts that to her. Absolutely. Then we have our queen, Alice. She is amazing in every way. She keeps she keeps Feyre humble. (laughs) And she keeps the she keeps the estate running. She keeps men in line and she keeps the estate running. Um, Alice is I mean, she's a boss bitch. She's amazing. She does it all for Feyre. Um, She she can braid like a queen. She knows Feyre is distressed getting here. And even though Feyre is extremely prejudiced against the Feyre 
Alice, you know, tries to make her as comfortable as possible. Um, she gives her clues. She is, I think Alice is really the main reason that Feyre kept her ears open, that she was able to understand what she was eavesdropping is, is because Alice was the one who told her, you know, keep your wits about you. Yeah. Um, so I think Alice was a huge component in Feyre being able to figure out, you know, what exactly was going on here. Like she was a small character, but she was a huge role in Feyre's success. Yeah, and she also played such a a huge role in Feyre feeling comfortable at the estate whenever she would go through really traumatizing events like being attacked by the Naga or I think after she found like the head on a spike in the garden as well. Um, Alice like makes her cups of molten chocolate and like draws her a bath and is like, hey, um, take a load off. I know that was a lot. It kind of is probably in part because Alice is like really trying to fill a void. She normally takes care of her nephews who were basically orphaned before like the under the mountain split. So 50 years ago. So she's not had her nephews in her life in 50 years. And she's uh, really got a hole in her heart. Um, Mrs. Taking care of people. Honestly, and you know, one of the pitfalls of Tamlin is that he he doesn't really like to see change. And I I do think Lucian and Alice are huge proponents for you know fighting back or taking a stand. And so I really do think both of them together were encouraging Farah to be stronger, to be mentally stronger and physically stronger, so that she could you know prepare herself for this. Whereas Tamlin, yeah, I mean, someone really, has to. He he wanted to take the easy way out. He wanted to take the comfortable way where he made favor fall in love with him, where, you know, it was happily ever after they beat the curse, whatever. Whereas with Lucian and Alice, they, they knew very much so that that may not be an option for them necessarily. And so they were taking their own precautions. Yeah, absolutely. Similar to, um, and we won't talk about them until under the mountain, but like Nuala and Saradwin, like again, smaller characters, but they, they play such an important role behind the scenes. So while Feyre is in the spring court, she has a lot of fun adventures, <laughs> one of which is capturing the Surreal. So the Surreal, the, the legend goes that if like you capture one, then they have to tell you anything you want to know. And so she asks Lucian, if I was to try and go out and capture a Surreal, like how would I do that? And so he actually gives her the advice on what to do and says, um, I'll be out like in the woods. If I hear you scream, like I'll come help you. So Farah does it. She captures the cereal. No one's ever done it before. <laughs> yeah. She's like Elle Woods, like getting into Harvard. She's like, what? Like it's hard. So she's asking the cereal, like if there's a way out of her predicament, she wants to be able to go home. And the Surreal's like, no, but just stay with the High Lord and everything's fine. And she's like, wait, but like, who's the High Lord? And he's like, oh, it's Tamlin. Like, you didn't know that? Oh, <laughs> oh T. Um, so yeah, Farah, she completely had no idea that Tamlin was High Lord of the Spring Court. Maybe she suspected because she knew that he was extremely powerful. But she is getting the scoop from the Surreal when all of a sudden... He's like, hey, there's actually something terrifying coming here to like capture me and eat you. So we're going to have to, <laughs> we're going to have to end this meeting a little short. So Feyre, as these horrifying creatures called the Naga arrive, uh, the first arrow she fires is to release the cereal because she is starting to 
sympathize with the fae creatures at this point in the novel. So she actually saves the cereal before she saves herself. So Feyre is being attacked by these horrifying creatures called the Naga, and she kills a couple of them on her own because honestly, she's a bad bitch. And, you know, she's pretty good at fighting things off. Um, as much as she doesn't like hunting. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't like hunting, but she she is scrappy. She does know how to fight. She does scream because Lucian said he would come to her rescue. Unfortunately, he hesitates because he's, uh, this is before he gives her the knife. <laughs> I think it, maybe he he's felt a little, a little bit shifty, bad. Like, um, little <laughs> yeah, so Tamlin luckily was out hunting the Naga anyway and heard Feyre scream and is like, oh shit. So uh, Tamlin comes to her rescue and gets rid of the other ones that she didn't kill on her own. So Tamlin tells her like, don't go out if I'm like out hunting things, don't go out in the woods. Like, I didn't think I had to tell you that, but I'm, I, apparently I did. And then Lucian, like I said, he ends up feeling guilty and as he should, <laughs> as he should, because why did you hesitate? That's so rude. Um, <laughs> so he gives her the hunting knife as sort of an apology and like a way of saying, I trust you. And he actually, when he gives it to her, he's like, don't bury it in my back because <laughs> he knows he's been a little yeah, bit of a shit. like, watch your every breath, my guy. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that is a, a moment of understanding between Feyre and Lucian. Like, okay, we're cool. We're pals. A very pivotal role in their relationship for sure. And I, I think it does. I mean, you'll, you'll see it a lot more under the mountain, obviously. Mm-hmm. And just the way that the two interact, the way that they do have each other's backs. Yeah, definitely. Cal and Mai. <sighs> Cal and Mai is one of my absolute favorite parts of this book. It is yeah. just such an interesting couple chapters in this book, not only for the development of the relationship between Feyre and Tamlin, but also we're introduced to a new character. So, Cal and Mai is called Fire Night. It is a time of the year where all of the Fae get together. You have the High Lords who, you know, perform this rite where essentially they they find a maiden and they help recharge the magic for the year. And um, they they, uh, they bang. A giant orgy. Um, <laughs> essentially Sarah J was trying to be polite when she said it but they have a massive orgy all across and it creates Um, it like renews the magic for the year basically like that keeps their courts and eternal spring and what have you Farah is told for absolutely no reason do you need to be out tonight lock your door stay inside (laughs) like do not leave I'm but honestly they should have told her why because yeah she's like you told me no so I'm gonna do it like yeah. I want to go to an awesome party because it did look like an awesome party mm-hmm. so she wanders out she makes it down to the giant bonfires of Cal and Mai immediately gets grabbed immediately, <laughs> immediately by, snatched immediately snatched by three fairies um and she is saved by tall dark and handsome the most as she quotes the most beautiful man she has ever seen in her life immediately that tells me a lot of things um (laughs) immediately I'm intrigued I Um, was right off the rip like absolutely who are we talking about um because never has she described the most beautiful man alive no absolutely not who is this he's clearly dangerous like the the three fairies who snatched her they were 
terrified of this guy. He's making moves left and right. He is asking her, you know, where are you going? Who are you with? Um, (laughs) May I escort you somewhere? Can he take you somewhere? (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't learn a whole lot more about him. That's fine because we got the best morsel on earth in this book. She is eventually saved by Lucian. Uh, She's taken back to the house where she is told once again, do not open your door for whatever reason (laughs) but you know what Farah doesn't do she doesn't stay in her room (laughs) no she needs herself a little midnight snack which fair makes her way down to the kitchens (laughs) targeted immediately by (laughs) Hamlet Hamlet's got those like hormones raging like hormones they have you know a pretty a pretty spicy encounter in in terms of a, a young adult novel, yeah. a hot encounter in the kitchen. And I think, again, that is a huge pivotal point physically between Tamlin and Farah because he yeah. makes it very, very clear. Like, I am into you if you had been out amongst Tamlin's the crowd, like, I'm DTF. Are like, you, you yeah. would have been the maiden. Yeah. And he searched for her everywhere. He could smell her, which is wild. Um, <laughs> Gross. <laughs> looking for her everywhere had to essentially sleep with some other chick and she was like I don't want your sloppy seconds that pisses him off to no end Mm -hmm. um and I think as we talked about he has an anger problem some lines are drawn in the sand that night and (laughs) they are now super into each other regardless of her saying the most beautiful man alive but that's neither here nor there um and she is just wildly into Tamlin after this point Mm -hmm. Yeah, she, um, and it's interesting to, uh, and I, Sarah J. Mass does elaborate on this in later novels, but to think of that scene, um, when in the previous scene, well, not the previous scene, but in a scene previous to this, Tamlin mentions that he knew she stole a knife from the dinner table at one point because he could smell the fear on her. So, I'm imagining he's smell, he's, smell, he's smelling a lot of things at this point in time. And you know that he can. Well, because one, Sarah J elaborates later on in other novels that yes, indeed, they can smell that. But also when they're at the, the breakfast table at one point, uh, Lucian's like, hey guys, I'm trying to eat <laughs> and you're being disgusting this is because they're making lot. eyes at each other. <laughs> Um, so a lot of emotions being thrown around in this breakfast table. (laughs) Anyway, um, that is like you're saying, great couple chapters. Very entertaining. Is a pivotal, (laughs) a pivotal part of the book where we really see their relationship taken to the next level. We know they are interested in each other and there's no going back. Yeah. And from there on out, they do continue to bond in lots of ways, but I'd say the next most notable way that the relationship develops is at the summer solstice celebration. So there's like a, a big party and this time Farah is invited. In fact, they, they like ask her to come and wear this really pretty dress. And she's like, sure. Like, I want to go to your party. So, um, she arrives and she's about to drink the wine there. And Lucian's like, Hey girl, actually, um, that shit's laced. Like, 
<laughs> he's like, basically, um, you'll be tripping if you drink that. And I recommend that you don't do it. And she was like, like well, more. <laughs> yeah, like, I honestly like, hey, her life has been miserable up to this point. Like, why shouldn't she like do some drugs and party? You know what I'm saying? So she drinks it anyway, because obviously, so she's having the time of her life. (laughs) And Tamlin, who plays the fiddle, um, he's up there just playing the fiddle with the band. He's having the time of his life. Feyre's dancing, and it's all around good vibes. And after the party, uh, Tamlin's like, I don't want this night to end. So he takes her to like a... Uh, like a, a secluded meadow. spot which is what you should never do <laughs> never go to a second location ladies never especially when you're drugged luckily Tamlin is not trying to murder Feyre otherwise I think he would have done it a long time ago and so he takes her to a meadow where there's like these fun little fairy light creatures they're these little like firefly like creatures but fairy versions so they're really pretty and they're out there and they're just dancing and falling in love vibing vibing you know the vibes so that's another like a really big moment for them um they kiss for the uh, first time their first real kiss yeah i think at this point he had he had <laughs> bitten her Snapped neck on her neck <laughs> and also i think that there had there had been like a he kissed her forehead and she kissed his hand like whenever he removes the glamour he licked the blood off of her broken (laughs) tongue like (laughs) (laughs) yeah so but this is their first real kiss he's like I want to kiss you and she says do it it was consensual um (laughs) we stand a consensual really cute like super cute moment it was a cute moment and very important um in the development (laughs) of their relationship so nothing goes farther though no they don't go any farther than that they do stay out till the wee hours of morning yeah. making out enjoying the festivities yeah. of summer solstice Farah comes down from her high eventually we wake up and immediately have breakfast hungover breakfast who doesn't love it some taco bell <laughs> and um, lucian can smell their horniness and he's uncomfy yeah that is when shit hits the fan, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, we immediately meet Tall, Dark, and Handsome again. And if you guys don't know, I stand a morally gray, tall, dark-haired character every time. Do. I mean, I think it's like a personality flaw for both of us. But yeah, we are very interested mm-hmm. in, in the the men that we shouldn't be. Like fictional men. In real life. Yeah, not in real life. Like I would never. I might. I don't know. I don't um, know. Fuck around and find out. I don't know. <laughs> it's fine. Neither here nor there. Um, however, we meet tall, dark, and handsome again. They're having a nice breakfast, and all of a sudden, they're like, get behind this curtain immediately. We're gonna <laughs> like I'm in danger. for the love of God, like say nothing, stand behind this curtain <laughs> and pretend you don't exist. Who is it? His name's Resan. He is the high lord of the night court. Of course he is. <laughs> Like, who else would he be? He had stars, like, trailing behind him. Yeah, he's literally, like, emitting a cloud of darkness. Like, amazing. We love him. Except he's a total dick. Yeah. Really? (laughs) Like, the worst. He's the worst. He takes hold of Farrah's consciousness. He proves that he is just absolute trash person he in starts the first five minutes gossiping from her own like brain he's like pharaoh wants you to like, bite her boobs tamlin out god recent <laughs> problematic favorite tamlin hates his guts 
Heights mm-hmm. is freaking good. They obviously have beef. Yeah, We're not sure do. what it is, but they've got some deep rooted beef. Yeah, he starts do. digging around in Thayer's head. And he's like, who are you? So she lies because you don't give out your name. Absolutely She's not. That's rule one. Blair better. He leaves and they realize they are in deep shit. Um, so what does he do? He packs Feyre up. He gives her the opportunity to say that she loves him. She does. She just doesn't say it back. I don't know why she wouldn't. They do she all the sleep together. Has, she has some deep-rooted issues. We finally see some steamy action between Farah and Tamlin. Unfortunately, it is not as long as I hoped it would be. Again, this was a young adult novel by Miss Sarah J. So uh-huh. can ask for a ton. Is it uh-huh. fair to say though that after it's not it's no considered it's not considered young adult anymore just due to the other books that have been released. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when it was first released, um, new adult was not an option. That was not a genre. Um, and so it was considered young adult until recently. Um, we do see a little spicy action though between Feyre and Tamlin. Um, he sends her away immediately. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) hit it and quit it. Yeah. You got to go back home now. Um, tells her that he loves her and she's just like, cool. Yeah. I know. Like, I absolutely ruins it. Ruins it all (laughs) for them. Like sentences them to an absolute life in hell. Yeah. Doesn't know that though. Makes it back home. She reunites with her sisters. Mm-hmm. My least favorite part of the book. <laughs> yeah, and I do get the point though. Um, it it serves as you know showing that Tamlin cares about her enough to put her well being above his courts, even though you know, like, come on, man, like, just give her a few more days. She would have said it, but he was really he was out, out of time though, like um, out of time. Yeah, like I think it was three days that that passed or it was it was a little bit of time actually yeah something I don't know he was running low he was running the clock down but he was very concerned after Rhysand visited and rightfully so Feyre is back home Hamlin has given her family wealth again and he has healed her father so she is seeing everything that Tamlin has done for her family while she was with him she is so grateful because it frees her from that vow that she had made to her dying mother as like a nine-year-old. She's like, oh, finally, my life's work is complete. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Everything I've been destined to do at the age of nine years the, old. At the ripe age of 19, I finally <laughs> saved my family. My life's mission. Uh, yeah, so Tamlin has really taken care of her family for her, which uh, really shows how much he did care she is reunited with Nesta, who apparently never was glamored. So he did I will talk about that later. Yeah, we'll touch on that some more. But yeah, so Nesta the entire time remembered that Pharaoh was taken by a fairy. And he had, Tamlin had tried to glamour her family to not remember any of that, but Nesta did. And so she and Feyre talk, Feyre tells her everything because, you know, she's not glamoured. So what is there to hide at this point? 
and Nesta's basically like, you need to You're go. You're dumb, back. bitch. What are like, you doing here? <laughs> we're fine here. Like, get the fuck out. And he so, didn't even want you back here. Yeah. Nesta's like, honestly, I didn't miss your raggedy ass. So just go find your boyfriend and, you know, get out. And so that's what Feyre does. She goes back, but it turns out um, Tamlin's estate is in tatters. Everything has been ransacked and Feyre's like, oh no. Um, luckily Alice is there and she's like, Hey girl, I can tell you exactly where they are, but you won't like it. And you shouldn't go there. And Pharaoh's like, well, I have to, because I'm in love. And Alice is like, okay, it's your funeral, but I'll take you. And then also she was like, Hey, have you figured it out yet? This yeah. is the reason why we're doing this. Yeah, them girl. Like, no, I know I haven't. So Alice has to take the time and be like, we are cursed, sis. Mm-hmm. Like we are cursed. And you had the one opportunity to tell this man that you loved him and you did. And then you didn't say it. Yeah. Leaves Feyre feeling pretty bad. Uh, I think she feels pretty guilty. So- Alice knows that though. That's why she helps her. Yeah. And also like Alice is like, I'm willing to take you there, but that's like, as far as I'll go, like, I'll drop you off at the cave entrance, but I have to go find my nephews because shit's about to pop off. And so Farah takes off on her own into the cave and Alice actually, she warns her, do not drink the wine. It's nothing like the wine you had on summer. Don't Sunday. make bargains. Do not make For the bargains. the love of God. <laughs> and what's the other thing she says? I don't know, but Feyre does it anyway. <laughs> like, I can't remember. Just all of those things, like, pretty much immediately. She, yeah, she breaks every warning that Alice tells her. Oh, and well, also, <laughs> Alice tells her, there is another part of this curse that, like, we literally cannot tell you because it's, you know, it's the, it's part of the curse, but you need to listen and pay attention because there's something that you don't know, but we can't We, we have told you before. Like, yeah. So she's like, you've heard this, but you need to like, but to listen. find it. So, so essentially, <laughs> the, the first half of the book, like up until we get to, you know, Farrah going back home, which again, I, <sighs> I understand. I understand why we had to have that part of the book to have that reconciliation with Nesta for her to understand, you know, why Feyre did what she did. I I think it's also important to know that, you know, Nesta was not affected by Tamlin's glamour. I do think that's going to play a role later. Still my least favorite part of the book. It it is a lot of a lot of nonsense um you know planning this wedding and you see Elaine useless Elaine yeah up until she goes planning a ball you mean you said wedding oh yep sorry I'm in a ball Um, (laughs) my bad Um, I knew what you meant planning this whole like ball and you know honor of Pharaoh then she doesn't even attend yeah she's like okay um I am actually gonna gonna go if you don't mind a very slow part of the book and Mm -hmm. it it does give you know them time for Reese to come back and you know basically sack the mansion and kidnap everybody just but it is it's okay I support him slow part of the book um and then once we get to under the mountain like a it it's a whole different story and you really lose that beauty and the beast narrative Feyre kind of takes over on her own you get to see mm-hmm. her character that's when her character really really does start to develop yeah and so you know switching over now we're going to talk about you know what all has happened 
under the mountain. She enters the mountain. Okay, so she arrives, immediately gets (laughs) kidnapped by the Ator, who's this horrifying, like, fairy that is, like, the right hand. Velociraptor, (laughs) pterodactyl creature. You know, you all have seen Alien. Uh, That's what I imagine the Ator looks like. I imagined a pterodactyl. I don't know why. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because it does have wings. That's fair. Um, so yeah, it takes her to Amarantha immediately and Amarantha's like, wait, who are you? Cause we thought we killed you already because when she gave Reese the name of Claire, Claire better, you may remember from the beginning of the story. Yeah. They, uh, they, uh, went and snatched her and murdered her entire family yeah, and made everything it look on like fire. their house caught on fire. And so, uh, everyone in the village thought that that's how they all died. But no, they they tortured and killed her, thinking that it was Tamlin's lover. And that kind of leaves us to uh, to talk about another red flag of Tamlin's is that he's not like, this ain't this ain't the girl. No, <laughs> I've never seen ain't. this woman before in my life. <laughs> yeah, this poor girl is literally begging for mercy. She's like, I have no idea who this man is. And they're like, clearly she must be lying. And uh, Tamlin's like, no, yep, that's her. Um, go ahead. <laughs> like, oh, shit, she got me. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Um, but yeah, Pharaoh's like, oh my God, like that's my fault. So she obviously feels spiraling horrible. <laughs> um, as if she didn't already have enough going on. And Amarantha's like, listen, I'll make you a deal. And immediately she breaks one of Alice's warnings. Amarantha makes a deal if she uh, completes three trials that the curse will be lifted. But if she solves this riddle at any time, the curse will be lifted immediately. And Feyre's like, yeah, that sounds good. And so, and, you know, blinded by love, Feyre is like, I would do anything for this man who yeah. has not even acknowledged her existence. He doesn't even man. look at her. Which I know, I know he was doing it to protect her. However, however, what a cold hearted bitch. Yeah, he's, he is protecting her physical well-being. He's protecting protecting himself. himself. (laughs) Yeah. Like he's more concerned with his, um, like his utter heartbreak if she gets ripped to shreds in front of him, which I get, but like at the same well, time, he's like, yeah, best of luck on these trials, buddy. <laughs> um, I hope you win. I'd love to take this mask off. Um, <laughs> so Feyre agrees and her trials are like once a month, I think like on every, every full like, moon. Yeah. Every full moon. That's what it is. So the first trial, she arrives and there is a pit of foul mud and it's like a maze and they're like hey we're just gonna shove you in there and turns out there's actually like a giant worm trying to eat her tabby and i've talked about this i am not sure why we picture the alaskan bullworm from spongebob oh yeah 100 (laughs) percent makes it fun um picture that (laughs) next time you're reading before the alaskan bullworm though before we have the um mid midgard worm um there was like the whole ordeal where she was like trying to figure out Feyre's name oh yeah which I think is a really crucial part of the story as well Mm -hmm. um so before you know Amaritha you know makes this deal with her like hey if you can figure out like what this riddle is like I'll let you go um she's like I gotta know your name got to know your name and Feyre's like absolutely (laughs) not I'm not telling you my name ma'am and she's like obsessed 
she's like, all right, fine, I'll kill Lucian then. And so has we stand like get inside Lucian's head and mm-hmm. is like, yeah, scramble his brains. And she's like, nope, not doing that. Tells her her name immediately. Nice and is like, oh, interesting. Like your name is from the old Fey language. Mm-hmm. And that may not matter now, but I do think it does later. We'll talk about that here in a second. But historically in the Fey his like history names have a lot of meaning and so it holds a lot of power and so that was just kind of like a power play from Amarantha and it also establishes this bond with Lucian and Farah because mm-hmm. she essentially saves his life keeps him from having his mind shattered and so that does play a role as well later on and so yeah you can go back to the men and gun word but I did think that was a really important part of the book no, you're right. That is because when, so Farah is running for her life through this mud maze from this Alaskan bullworm. And uh, at one point she like sets up a trap for it because she's a huntress. That's how she survived. She knows like what to do. So she sets up like these spikes for it to be impaled on, but she has to get it. Yes. The bones of uh, other victims of the Alaskan bullworm. At one point, she's completely has no idea where this worm is at, but she has like cut her hand so it comes to the smell of her blood or whatever. And so Lucian yells out to help her, like where it's coming from. So he like yells out, like it's to your left. And so she knows what direction to run. Um, but yeah, she ends up defeating that trial by getting the worm to like impale itself. But she does really, really break her arm, like real bad. But what's important too is that like she used her freaking smarts in that too. Not only did mm-hmm. she create like this bone pit, but she learned how to mask herself from the True. like the scent, like her own scent from the worm. And yeah, so that was blind. a big part too, because all the Fae were like, what the heck is this girl doing? And Reese is <laughs> like, you know, she has made herself invisible. And so we yeah. do get like a, a, a commentate, like a commentator type role from Reese throughout the the Mm -hmm. trials itself um but Lucian does come in clutch yes and also it's worth noting that a bunch of people were betting on how long she would last and Reese bet bets in Feyre's favor that she's the only person not even Tamlin well I don't think Tamlin placed a bet to be fair (laughs) but if he did he wouldn't have voted for her you're right he wouldn't we move on uh, to Farah <laughs> bone is protruding uh, it's infected because the mud was also like covered in excrement from the worm and god knows what else decomposed in there so she is horribly injured it's and figured. ill <laughs> uh, so Reese arrives he just My appears king. out of the shadows into her cell and he's like, yeah <laughs> he is but why do I love him I love him Uh, so he's like you know what I can heal that for you um all it's gonna take is just a couple weeks of your time every month for the rest of your life that's it nothing like no big deal and Pharaoh's like no like absolutely not I'd rather die (laughs) she quite literally is like yeah I'd rather die and he's like okay but just so you know like you are dying and like when I leave (laughs) my offer is not going to stand anymore so she actually bargains her way down and she they end up settling on one week a month she is going to live with him 
at the night court for the rest of her life. And so she even is kind of like, wow, he thinks that I'm going to survive this. Like he's thinking that there's a rest of my life for me to go like live in his Which court. was wild to her. Cause she's like, I don't think I'm going to live past tonight. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> she is very, very concerned for her well-being which <laughs> she, she's been in this dungeon for days with just like this festering yeah. wound yeah she's like on her deathbed at this point when he comes and so that's pretty strategic on his point like because he let her wait it out a little bit um she did I think she was holding out for Lucian to come save her which he, he did oh we forgot to say that so yeah. Whenever, yeah she was originally thrown into the cell after she made this bargain with Amarantha they like shattered her face broke her nose Lucian saved her face he healed everything he mm-hmm. didn't have to do that but he did because you know she helped him out again just kind of solidifying that bond that she and Lucian had made however where's Tamlin we're mm-hmm. not sure he had to send yeah. to come help Just her hiding. and so now we have Lucian and Resand who have both helped her out and still no sign of Tamlin coward so Reese saves Barra's life and then we can move into trial two so trial two starts obviously we are doing this every full moon Barra gets to this like cell type thing looks over sees who is it Lucian it's Lucian he is <laughs> manacled to this post essentially like handcuffed to it and there are giant walls that are like a million degrees they have spikes on them start moving in and she's like hey there are all very sharp spikes they'd be going to flatten them burn them alive and impale them all at once but like slowly there are (laughs) three lovers like are they lovers are they i can't remember yeah they're lovers Mm-hmm. Three lovers for her to choose from. She just has to be able to read which one's <laughs> correct. What can Farrah not do? She can't read. What up? My name's Jared. I'm 19. I never learned how to fucking read. Fucking oh read. my God. Um, He's 19. Yeah. So is She's also 19. She can't read either. That's a big issue. and Jared. You know, Lucian is panicking. My man is like, we are not making out because Farrah can't read. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she is looking at all of these like betting on her option she's like you know what number two there's two of us me and tamlin choosing it goes to pull it hand is on fire like absolutely not she's like that's weird let me try it again hand on fire Mm -hmm. goes for number one same thing like someone's telling her something so she goes for number three pulls it that's the right one nick of time saves the day lucian is like poop in his pants at this point yeah like they're about to be upset and distraught they're so close to being (laughs) nailed by these fiery spikes it's the it's the same hand that her bond is on Mm -hmm. that her tattoo is on and so you know she has someone helping her out in the crowd yeah um she is a freaking mess and <laughs> is like bitch you can't read and she is a mess and so you have resand in the back of her head like you know what you can't cry you got to stand up straight you got to look proud and so it's basically like coaching her through how to get through this interaction with amarantha gets back to her cell absolutely has a meltdown full-on breakdown like thought that it was the end for her and now lucian she does not know how she survived this um she is like broken and so go on to the next couple of nights they kind of leave her there leave her to deal with whatever she's dealing with they're um, like she's crying a lot we'll just she's crying yeah. a lot give it some time 
she did not think she's getting out of this. So we start introducing Nuala and Caridwin. These two wraiths just appear in her cell one night. She's distraught, still crying. And they're like, hey, Queenie, like we are going to a party. And she's like, you know what? <laughs> you I'd, gotta look your best. So I'd like, really rather not. Um, they pull her out of the cell. They get her dressed in essentially cobwebs. Um, like <laughs> and paint. Her, absolutely nothing. Paint her entire body. And they're like, yep, you're attending this party with Reese. And so Reese has made it. So this paint, like if anyone touches her, like it is disfigured. You can tell it's magical. And so she basically has to act as Reese Ann's like human plaything while they're at these parties. Like he keeps her strapped to his hip, like provides her with this fairy wine. She blacks out. She dances for him. It is embarrassing. Yeah, she's pretty mortified when she realizes what's happening. Lucian kind of fills in the gaps for her. Mm -hmm. um, And he's like, why would you make a deal with him? And Feyre's like, hey, bestie, I was dying. Where were you at? Yeah, and it turns out um, Lucian had been punished for helping her during the first trial. So Tamlin had to give him like 20 lashes or something. But anyway, like (laughs) he was in rough shape. Like he couldn't move himself. And so he could not come to her aid. And so that's why she was forced to make it. During that time, we forgot to mention, Amaretha has her doing like house chores. Oh yeah. Like she is doing like menial labor. (laughs) She's um, also like given her tasks that she's clearly going to fail. Like she tells her to clean the floor, but it's with dirty water. Dirty water. And so Lucian's mom comes in clutch and is like, you saved my son. I'm gonna help you out. And so she's in good with the lady of the autumn court. Yeah. There's a lot of relationship building in this and under the mountain is where most of it takes place but yeah a lot of bonds are being formed Resan before he you know starts making her dance for him and stuff under like during these parties while she's drugged on fairy wine um they have her go in and like clean this fireplace that has like lentils and it turns out it's Resan's room he's like why the heck are you in here um they form I think a really strong bond at that point in time because he kind of confides in her you know a little bit history about himself that he is also able to like change shapes and that he is very powerful and that he has essentially been you know Amarantha's like sex slave for 50 years Amarantha's whore is what they call him um, and so I think that also establishes some rapport between her and Resan. as much as she doesn't like him, um, she at least, you know, starts to pity him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that is, you know, why obviously he dresses her up every night. He makes a statement of her so that he is like protecting her in his own way. No one else is really like fucking with her while she's under the mat. It's not right. We can it's forgive the right. red flags when it's recent. <laughs> It's not right. And he shouldn't have done it. And I, I feel like really gross about it. Like, but also okay. like, listen, give him time to apologize for it. He'll probably apologize for a reason. He has her do this like every fucking night for like a month. Yeah. Like the next full moon. And like, it's the night before her third trial and you know, shit gets crazy. So the night before her third trial, Pharaoh's like, I could die tomorrow. And so she arrives at this party and it just so happens (laughs) that Reese is distracted so she doesn't get drugged right away. And so she feels that Tamlin is like right next to her and she's like, it's, it's Bay. And so Tamlin. Everyone's distracted. Everyone's distracted. Everyone was. Yeah. So they were like, 
let's go like get a quickie in and uh so she follows tamlin into like this dark corridor so tamlin was like let's go get a quickie in yeah but pharaoh was like she was about it too it. But yeah, she, she was also it. like drunk <clears throat> i don't think she'd had the... oh i know she hadn't done fairy wine yeah right. no she just like she, i think she she was, I think she was like no i'm fucking sure. dying tomorrow yeah. <laughs> it was definitely like she was definitely vulnerable but i don't think that it was like i mean so was he anyway <laughs> was he though what they, was he vulnerable about yeah, what has he been doing I mean, this whole time they probably shouldn't have been doing it like it wasn't the time but like it was consensual you know what i mean so they're I making out he did Wait. sleep with amaranth at least once i don't know like i don't know if that's true but i feel like he probably did let's table that and talk about that during our our theories portion at the end because i like that i like where you're going yeah, i bet he did um <laughs> so they're making out and like they're gonna do more than make out you know what i'm saying but reese arrives uh fuck not he's like hey um dumbasses so if Amarantha walks in, like she's gonna be mad and she's gonna kill everyone. Like this is this is bad. He's marred her makeup. Like he has oh, yeah, the paint commands all over Feyre. Yeah. So all of the paint that Reese has Feyre dressed in is now on Tamlin. And so Reese is like, Tamlin, like button your pants back up, buddy. Like you look like a, you look like a dumb dumb. So then Reese like transfers the paint to himself pharaoh doesn't realize it yet but he like transfers the paint onto his own body um using like a glamour of sorts so that when amarantha comes through the corridor when she finds tam like coming out of this closet yeah then reese um kind of just sexually assaults Farrah is what happened this is Farrah um he, no, he assaults Farrah he is like he assaults Farrah okay but um, she okay no it she, is life or death but he does assault she Farrah. did not want it even a little bit however yeah. like, good for them but also don't do that yeah um it was it was not something he wanted to do I think he felt like it was literally like they but had she was no like, other oh, option that's not like as bad as I thought it'd be yeah, he was like, I don't know, I was kind of into it, but I could tell she wasn't. <laughs> um, <my> so, <laughs> yeah. So Pharaoh's obviously pissed off that he did that, but he arrives in her cell later that night and he's like, Hey, look, like you you were acting a fool. I had to like do <laughs> something. I had to shove my tongue down your throat. You get it. Like you understand. And Pharaoh's like, not really, but he's like, that's fine um <laughs> she is like fucking like broken at this point she is like mess a mess mm-hmm. and like crying and he's like why are you crying he has to end up leaving when he's leaving though she like hears music and oh yeah it keeps her from breaking and it, it's like beautiful music she mm-hmm. is like having an absolute meltdown it calms her down Rhysand returns later kind of spills his heart to her and it's just like, you know, what? I don't even fucking want to do this. Like, I am here because it is helping the greater good. He is like, I, you know, had this plan in place and it was going to work and now everything is ruined. He's like, I don't think we're going to get out of here. And basically, yeah. like, we learned recent, like, is not a bad, like, he's a bad guy. But, like, he is not... <laughs> 
like <clears throat> he's doing it for good reasons and like this whole time he's just playing amarantha's whore because he thought he generally could figure out like a way to get them out of this and now he's like also mm-hmm. just like yeah there's there's no way yeah <laughs> and there's more to learn in the second book which obviously we'll talk about soon but there's more to learn about like what he was plotting and like the reason like his motivations um but yeah clearly he was an asshole in this book there's no denying he's just a dick in this book (laughs) yeah it's something that um if you can imagine being in a situation where you're imprisoned for 50 years you probably would do some pretty selfish and bad things like to get out of it so um I don't think I'm better than him I don't know like I I would probably act the same and honestly like he, he really thinks like this is the end for everybody he's like tomorrow's your last trial like best of luck but like there is no fucking yeah. <laughs> he's like listen you can't even read <laughs> <laughs> like bro we barely got out of the last one like we'll see Uh-oh. what happens third trial yeah. though <laughs> yeah third trial oh man things are rough here so third trial rolls around pharaoh walks out there are three fae just chilling in chairs hoods over their heads and she's like what is this and amaranth is like she's like yeah we're going there you gotta kill them like you gotta kill them to finish this trial she's you gotta stab them in the hearts and Pharaoh was like mm, I don't know if I can do that um she's like yep the last trial if you can't do this like everyone is in prison here and you are dying and so they bring her this dagger on a black pillow and she has to look each one in the eye first one is like this super young dude begging for his life crying upset stabs him in the heart break she is shattering inside like upset and second lady it is again a younger fae she starts praying it's the same prayer that they say over you know the um fae that ended up dying after amaranth cut his wings off and pharah the remorse she feels immediately she hasn't even killed this lady yet and like already her heart is breaking and i the the fae lady she obviously understands she wants everyone to escape as much as anybody um you know Farrah kills her and just a piece of her soul just keeps chipping away she is distraught pulls off that third hood who is it it's Tamlin it's your boy it's of course it's Tamlin turn around <laughs> Tamlin we thought what he was up by Amarantha in the dais there's no way it's Theator yeah bitch we saw it <laughs> glamored just kidding nope tamlin's in this chair you got to stab him in the heart what are you gonna do we got to think about it obviously yeah farah think about the things you've heard yeah. what have you heard what, what did alice tell you what did you eavesdrop like, keep your wits about you keep your ears open when we kept our ears open farah what did we hear and um we what heard lucian he say tamlin <laughs> tamlin buddy the heart is stone and yet <laughs> even though you have a heart of stone you're a dramatic little bitch that's be a tour as well it's mentioned twice stone. that's weird that's a weird saying yeah or said it too yeah he's like you got a heart of stone but you're you're afraid of a lot of things even though your heart's made out of stone pretty weird <laughs> but do you remember like your heart's stone and she's like wow that's crazy that they would say it twice yeah like who said that, that? And so she's sitting here pondering life, like pondering, hmm, what could that possibly mean? What can it mean? And they, when they say that he has a heart of stone, like. And like all the while she's thinking like, 
well, maybe I can just think of like the answer to this extremely easy riddle that Amarantha has given me. <laughs> yeah, uh, honestly, I'm not gonna lie, Sarah. I, I couldn't figure out, out the riddle either, buddy. Really? <laughs> I, I did eventually. I did figure out quicker than she did, but I was just I, like, okay, damn, yeah, like, I did not figure here? it out right away, but I think I like I figured it out before she did. Like but, every time yeah. she said love, I was like, oh yeah, it's love. Mm-hmm, it is, and. <laughs> So Feyre is like, man, I hope this isn't a metaphor. So she shoves that dagger. <laughs> She's like, man, this is going to really suck if I was wrong. <laughs> but luckily, she feels it like reverberate on some stone. She's like, fuck yes. Thank like, I, I did it. And Amarantha is like, no, Which I think not. not. <laughs> yeah, Amarantha's like, you thought that when I said when you answered the riddle immediately, that that meant when you complete the trials, that the curse would be broken immediately. Like, and Pharaoh's yeah, like, well, yeah, I kind of did think that. Like, <laughs> no, I'll release you when I want to. You may be dead by then. Yeah, and Amaretha was like, actually, I'm going to go ahead and kill you. So she's like picking up Pharaoh because she has- Crushing uh, her body. Yeah, she's got all these powers from that she stole from the High Lords. So she's using these powers to shatter Pharaoh's bones. Like breaking her ribs, like <laughs> pulling her apart, like toenails, fingernails yanked out. Like the whole time this is happening, I'm just like, my God- What's Tamlin doing crying? Like a rag doll, like Tamlin's crying on his knees. Like, please don't do that. Yeah, and Tamlin like is literally doing nothing um, except for cry. What's my And Reese is like shouting Feyre's name. He picks up a dagger and he's like, "I'm gonna stab Amarantha." He's ready to take action. Yeah, uh, unlike Tamlin. And so Amarantha like sees Reese coming for her with a dagger, and she's like, "Absolutely not!" Flings him against the wall. But Feyre witnesses that and she's like, oh, wow. Wow. It's kind of like he cares about me. That's weird. And uh, (laughs) and Feyre's like, you know what? I know the answer to the riddle because as I'm having this, like um, my life flash before my eyes. (laughs) All these people that I love. (laughs) Like I'm having this little moment here. So she answers the riddle. The curse is immediately broken, but unfortunately, Amarantha does kill Feyre. Just she snaps her, her neck. neck. Um, She's so like, Feyre's <laughs> dead. Um, and she but is out of body, witnessing her lifeless body. She's tethered to something. She's tethered yes. to something, looking she, through the eyes of somebody else. Yes. Oh, yeah. So she is seeing things from the perspective of who she figures out is Reese. So Reese watches Tamlin literally destroy Amarantha, like That's kills her. her, rips her heart so out. bad. Yeah, like he he kills her so dead. He kills like, her you to a even, wall. You wouldn't even believe it. Yeah, underneath like Claire Better's body. Um, and and then all the High Lords come and basically revive Farah as a High Fae, which is beautiful because everybody like gives like they just put a little kernel of power into her and when Reese Reese is the last one put his kernel of power in and when he does that she's able to travel down the bond that they have created Mm -hmm. and re-enter her body and essentially it's what revives her is Reese's kernel of power yeah she wakes up as high fae crazy how does that happen no one knows magic that's never been done before I I think they say it has been done before oh yeah because of um What's her name? 
I don't remember, but I, <laughs> we'll get Miriam, to that whenever we Miriam, read together Miriam, books. Something like that. Miriam. Miriam. Yes, Miriam. Yeah. So yes, we Miriam, will revisit Miriam. that with the other books. Uh, but it, but has, it has better. not been done in a very, very long time. Correct. And um, they, they don't like, they don't do it a lot. <laughs> They're very sparing. Like, this is a very special thing. But it wasn't the High Lords who revived Miriam. This is the first time all the High Lords have come together to revive someone, make them into a new body. So she's a... a Hi, Faye with a human heart. Mm-hmm. And so she's revived. She is reunited with her love, Tamlin. And, you know, he is doing some stuff. They're trying to figure out, you know, what, what happens next. All the High Lords have been trapped under the mountain this whole time. Amaranth is dead. They're all meeting together. You know, what, what needs to happen next? Fair has been chilling. She's obviously tired. She is broken. <laughs> she has gone through a, a lot. She wakes in the dead of night. And is like, is feeling a pull on this bond that she has. So she follows it. So she follows it, finally finds Resand in this room. They have a very just deep heart to heart kind of going over again, you know, why he did things the way he did, apologizing for everything she's gone through. Um, Like essentially they create this uh, friendship. No one else is friends with Reese, but he and Farrah have been through so much. They're, they're buddies now. Yeah. It's a trauma bond. It's very powerful. As he is leaving, though, something happens. Something crazy has happened, and he is, like, shooketh. Yeah, there is shock written all over his face. Like, he hugs Farah. Like, they they touch briefly, and, like, just something has spooked this man so much that he (laughs) disappears from the face of the earth. (laughs) Yeah, like, he literally um, disappears before Farah. Like, he pissed out of existence. She's like, what's the matter? And, like, in the middle of her sentence, like, he's gone. Like, he doesn't want to talk about it. So she's like, wow, that was awfully strange. (laughs) Awfully strange, but I think I'm going to go back to bed now because it's it's late or early. Story ends, Tamlin's like, Farah, baby girl, let's go home. I'm like let's go home back to the spring court that is how the story ends no that's like uh when you said baby girl it's like when reese finds her at cal and Maya, like are you lost, lost baby girl, girl? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah our story ends with farah she is with the love of her life tamlin mm-hmm. things seem to be happily ever after are they i don't know because she's broken she is shattered yeah she's not she's well. like i have to live forever <clears throat> Knowing that I murdered these two in cold blood, but I'm going to try to do it for the sake of Tamlin. So they run off to the sunset, back to the spring court, the end. So we have discussed now, like the actual, like the entirety of the book, but now we're going to go through and talk about some things that happened throughout the book. So I'm going to start us off with symbolism. I could have, I could have done a lot more, but I kind of picked the, I focused on three things that I think are the most important in this book. So first of all, the bow and arrow. For Feyre, the bow and arrow, it symbolizes life and death because she is forced to learn how to hunt to keep her family alive. But in doing so, she has to take the life of another creature. And she has kind of a flashback moment. And actually, I don't think the first time she hunted was with a bow and arrow, technically. I think it was with a knife. She killed Mm -hmm. a rabbit for the first time. But the first time she ever took a life, like it was very traumatic for her. It was something that she, basically, she was like, I never want to do that again, but she had no choice because they were going to starve to death otherwise. (laughs) 
So it's with the bow and arrow that she takes Andres's life. And that's what sets the story in motion. That's what kicks everything off. Once she's in Prithian, however, they, uh, Lucian like takes her on a hunt and stuff because they're like, we hear you like hunting. I don't know. Like, so we're going to go hunting. So she has a bow and arrow with her while she's going on these hunts with Lucian, but she doesn't kill anything. Um, because she is in a place now where food is so plentiful. Like she eats herself sick, like the first night she's there. So she doesn't need to hunt to survive anymore. So she's not interested in taking the life of anything. Later, when she has captured the cereal, she has the cereal um, caught in like a snare that she fashioned. But when the Naga arrive, the cereal's life is in danger as well. So she has a bow and arrow with her for self-defense. She actually shoots her first arrow to into the snare to release the cereal. So at this point, she's become more sympathetic to the Fae and she puts the life of the cereal above her own. So she, at this point, the bow and arrow has kind of shifted from a symbol of like what's keeping her alive to like something that's keeping others alive around her, which I mean, I guess it was that too in the beginning because her family was eating as well, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Painting, painting for Feyre, like that's the only thing that brings her joy in life. So when she's living in patterns, in a shack, colors, like, yeah, exactly. So she's, she's always thinking about how she can turn something into a painting. And when she's living in a shack, like there's one summer that Elaine gifted her like three paints. And so Feyre decorated their cottage with it. Um, And by the time that like, we are starting the story with Feyre, all of this stuff has been like chipped off. It's so old, but like it's still there and she still looks at it and it reminds her of joy. So when Tamlin realizes that she is, she's into painting, she likes art, he gets her stuff to continue painting. So she paints like, when she gets the supplies, she paints a whole bunch of stuff. Like she paints scary stuff. She paints funny stuff. She just paints like everything that she feels. When she's out, she's cataloging colors in her mind. And she's always thinking about, can I paint this thing? When she meets Reese for the first time, she's like, I wouldn't dare try to paint this man. Like, I would not dare to try to capture that. Same with Amarantha, I believe. She's like, I'm she's like, there's I, no way I could ever capture the uniqueness that is her face. Yeah. So she's always thinking about things in terms of how she can paint because that's like the one thing that brings her joy in life. Um, by the end of the novel, after she's killed two innocent high fae. When she goes out to meet with Reese, um, I think like the sun's coming up and like she notices the beauty of the color, but she she mentions like she doesn't catalog it in her mind because she's not interested in painting anymore. So she has lost that last lifeline that she has basically at this point, like that last shred of her humanity has been stripped from her by the end of the novel. The last symbol I'm going to talk about is eyes throughout the novel so we start off she kills that wolf she looks in its eyes and she is like that there's intelligence there yeah there's intelligence there that's a fairy what does she do 
fires an arrow through that bad boy. She shoots him right <laughs> in the eye. Um, because at this point, she has absolutely no sympathy for the high fae, or not the high fae, for fairies in general. Yeah. And she just thinks they're all horrible creatures. She has such hate in her heart for them. So as she's leaving, after she has literally skinned this fairy, she um, on page eight, it says, his remaining golden eye now stared at the snow-heavy sky. And for a moment, I wished I had it in me to feel remorse for the dead thing. So that's where we start. That's our beloved Feyre. That is deep and heavy. <laughs> it's, it's pretty messed up. So when Tamlin burst into her cottage to, um, to bring her back to Prithian, the one thing that she notices about him are his eyes being not animal-like. So she knows it's a fairy. I mean, because she knows it's a fairy for a lot. It of also reasons. talks. <laughs> yeah, it, it also talks. <laughs> um, it also is like three different animals combined into one. Yeah, and, that's normal. But his eyes, um, it says they're human looking and they're green and flecked with amber, which are the spring court colors. Um, later, when she falls in love with him, though, his green eyes are something that she looks forward to seeing. And it's something that uh, brings her comfort when she's in the cell under the mountain. She like, um, she can picture like the green of Tamlin's eyes and it, it becomes like a symbol of hope and love for her rather than, you know, at the beginning when she's looking into Tamlin's eyes as he's just come into her cottage. Um, she's terrified of him at that point. So that does shift as well. Another thing are Farah's own eyes. She mentions her eyes are the same eyes that Nesta has and they inherited them from her mother. So when she looks in the mirror, she hates to look at her own reflection because she has her mother's eyes. It's Nesta's she eyes. Her mother. Yeah, she has such resentment in her heart for her mother. And that translates to Nesta as well because Nesta is so much like their mother. Um, later, after the spring court finally begins to feel like a home and she's finally starting to fall in love with Tamlin. And um, at this point, she knows her family is well cared for. So she, she doesn't have that like weighing on her anymore. Uh, page 203, it says, I dared to say that some kind of light had crept into my eyes, my eyes, not my mother's eyes or Nesta's eyes, mine. So at that point, she's finally like, it symbolizes her being free from that promise. Person. Yeah, she's her own person now. She can focus on her own wants and needs and she finally just feels free. Another good one. Lucian lost his eye to Amarantha. Um, so Amarantha. And Durian's eye. Has a, yeah, guess what's on my list next. <laughs> so, um, oh, actually, it's not next. Stay tuned. <laughs> Amarantha, in a rage, took Lucian's eye. And another thing about Lucian, his eye being lost, is that Tamlin had it replaced with, like, a mechanical eye. He got this for Lucian. To Farah, that symbolizes like judgment and um, scrutiny. She is going on her first hunt with Lucian, and she says on page 84 that she was hoping that that eye of his couldn't see through the back of his head. Um, the other thing about Lucian's remaining eye is Farah always notices every emotion that Lucian's ever feeling, Farah can see in his remaining, like, uh, non-mechanical eye so it's like Lucian has an eye that's like connected to emotion and then an eye that's like judgmental in Pharaoh's mind 
Another thing that she writes about is the cereal's eyes, which are swirling pits of milky white, the white of death, the white of sickness, the white of clean picked corpses. And I think that kind of goes back to just, we were talking about this actually before we started recording. So this is something we can touch on in, in later books, but that goes back to the old, powerful, ancientness of the cereal and how it's so old it's seen so many lifetimes go by it's seen so many fae you know kind of move on to that next phase of life like I, I think it does show like a passing of time in that like the cereal is like eternal whereas everything else kind of passes it by exactly with Reese's eyes and probably all of the High Lord's eyes, I'm assuming that they all kind of symbolize what uh, what mm-hmm. court they're High Lord of. But Reese's eyes are blue eyes so deep they're a violet. And Feyre also oftentimes perceives them as twinkling. She'll My say they're twinkling eyes. with amusement. Um, so yeah, it's like it's like stars in the night sky. The tattoo. She's got an eye on her palm. Hello. So, um, yeah, that one's really obvious. Uh, Feyre. Reese is watching like, up or. Yeah, Reese is, well, he's watching He's her, watching her. Um, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. And Feyre feels spied on by her tattoo. She, she's looking at it one night. She could swear that it blinked. Its pupil adjusts to the light. It like narrows and stuff. Um, so yeah, Reese is is using it to watch Farah in in a manner of speaking, and Farah feels a bit uneasy about that. And then lastly, Jurian's eye. So Jurian is the the guy who betrayed Amarantha's sister. He was a human. Amarantha's hatred of humans all comes back to Jurian, uh, screwing over her sister. So led the rebellion against Amarantha and the King of Mm -hmm. Highburn, tricked her sister into falling in love with him for information, and then ended up killing Clithia, just spinning Amarantha into an absolute rage. Probably one of the reasons she is so unhinged (laughs) the way that she is now. I think that's fair. Yeah. (laughs) Because, well, obviously she's bothered by it. She wears one of Jurian's bones on a necklace and also wears a ring made of Jurian's eyeball. Which that is so conscious. She has attached his consciousness to his eyeball in this ring. So he's forced to watch everything Amarantha does for eternity or, you know, for the rest of Amarantha's life, I should say. That sums up some of the main symbols that I think recur throughout the book. And honestly, I'm interested to pay attention as we reread the other ones. If these, uh, I know painting sticks around. We'll see if, if I sticks around a lot. I know bow and arrow, probably not so much. Yeah. We'll just, you know, wrapping up, going over some of the theories that, you know, you should pay attention to or kind of keep your eye out over the next couple of books. I do think um, it's something that's eventually going to kind of tie into everything. Um, Farrah's mom is a character that is, you know, talked about quite a bit throughout this, the book, but is never really described too often or really has gone into detail much about who she is. Um, some very interesting things about Farah's mom, though, obviously starts with the vow that she made Farah take. She made her promise at the, the age of nine to take care of her family. Um, as you can see later on in the book, bonds are 
a huge deal to the Fae. The bond that Farah has created with Reese, or the promise she's created with Reese, it was, you know, set in ink, essentially. It's, it's a lifelong thing, um, and there's repercussions if you break these bonds. So the fact that, you know, Farah and her mother took these so seriously does kind of allude to the fact that that is something that was taken from the Fae a long time ago. One theory that I have is that Farah's mom is somehow connected to the Fae, um, whether that be she is a descendant or she has spent some time amongst the Fae. I do think she is connected to them. The Val is a, a good example of that. I do also think just in terms of, you know, Nesta herself. So she is immune to Tamlin's glamour. That is not normal. Um, In the beginning of the book, they even say how humans don't have any sort of magic. There's no magic left on that side of the wall. There's no reason why she should be immune to his glamour. There's no reason why her mental shield should be you know, that high to where she's immune to it. So I do think that there is something involved there. Absolutely. Well, I was just going to say, still touching on Feyre's mother, um, Feyre's name that, I mean, Mm -hmm. assuming that her mother named her, like, which is probably the case, it comes from an ancient Fae dialect and why in a world where mortals hate the Fae, yeah, why would you name your kid after, after a fairy language? So unless you're, you know, somehow connected to them. Exactly. And in the um, beginning of the book, Tamlin is talking with Feyre about, um, you know, just old tales that they've heard about the Fae and like some incorrect things that they've been told about them. And when Feyre is like, you know, what do you mean you can't lie? What do you mean Ira doesn't affect you? Tamlin's like, did your mother not tell you anything about us? And Feyre is essentially like, no, like my mom's not in the picture. And so I always thought it was very strange that he would ask, you know, why, like, has your mother not told you about us when he knows for a fact her mom is not in the picture? Her dad is the yeah. one who is raising them. And so it's like, what about Farah's mom was so special to where she should have warned Farah about, you know, the truth about the Fae, essentially. Because um, at this point, he's already revealed the fact that he he knew her mother had passed because right. he tells her, like, there were no signs of an older woman living in your cottage. Exactly. So he and knows so- that her mother's passed away. Right. And so it's like, why, why would her mother be the one to tell her about the dangers of the Fae and not her father, who was clearly the parent in her life? Um, and so this does continue on throughout the rest of the books, and we are going to touch more on it. Um, I do think, you know, there is a lot surrounding Feyre's mom and um, you know, who she was, who their family is, because we really just don't get any background except for the fact that she died of typhus and she did have these high expectations for all of her children. And they do all have some very interesting qualities about them that are not normal for typical humans. And so something that we'll keep an eye on as well. Um, the cereal itself, that is something that we'll revisit later too. Um, <laughs> the, the fact with it being, you know, so old, it's older than Prithian, that is something that's talked about in future books. So there's a lot of theories surrounding that as well. Also, um, I think it's clear from the very end of the novel that there is more that's going to develop between Feyre and Reese. We know that at this point, they have obviously the bond that they've created. Feyre has dedicated a week every month of her life to him. And now she's immortal. So that's for a very long time. Additionally, with him being, as he's about to leave, just being completely shocked after 
you know, like trying to say goodbye to her and then just disappearing without explaining himself. We know that there's more to see there. So what? I don't know, but <laughs> find out. We find out when we continue looking next Monday at yeah. A Court of Mist and Fury. It's the second installment of. Well, that'll the- be actually a couple Mondays. Oh, sorry. And two Mondays. Wow. <laughs> and two Mondays two Mondays when we look at A Court of Mist and Fury, so the second installment of this series, mm-hmm. uh, following more about Feyre in her, you know, journey into being an immortal fae. So next Monday, actually, we are going to have our first mini-sode, and we're going to talk about the Hulu adaptation of Akatar. So we're going we're gonna to share our fan casts with you. Um, we do want to ask that if you have any theories or, or fan casts of your own that you'd like us to kind of talk about on here, that you can email those to us. Our email is thesisterswarden at gmail.com. Also, like if you have any thoughts about anything we've talked about today or anything you want to add on, email us as well. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you have anything, if you've um, read more of the books in the series already and want us to mention things when we cover those books, that would be really fun. We'd love to hear from you guys. Well, thank you guys so much for sticking around with us for this very first episode of Best Friends Book Club. We are so excited to continue on with the Akatar installments here over the next few weeks. Um, But as always, let's let's get get lit. lit.